jokes in chat. <laughs> Back from a claustrophobic panic to a choking panic, uh, with the rescue of the warden, the four friends fight viciously to get the many reptilian attackers off the heron. Rose calls out for Grum to make a fire. Because they can't see anything. All they can do is feel like what feels like a horde of reptilian bodies. But once yeah, the they're fire... basically lashing out blindly, mm -hmm. hitting them as they do. Once They get very lucky here. Yeah. Once the fire is alight, they see the attackers, the two slow worms, both now dead, along with a grass snake and a young adder. Rose goes over to see to the warden, while the other three shove the dead bodies into the marsh. Some careful massaging of the warden's neck sees him revive long enough to mutter his catchphrase. Rose sues him and tells the other four to gather supplies for a soothing poultice if they can find them. And one small side note, Brian is very unclear if the grass snake and the adder are alive or not. He just describes them as bodies, like they shove the bodies into the marsh. He only specifies oh. that the slow worms are dead, but not the grass snake and the young adder, because later... Later, we have the warden, like, scolding Martin for not making sure all four were dead. It's just, I want to clarify that now. It's very, very vaguely written on if the two are dead or not. The warden is a strong creature, healing up with a stubborn insistence he would punish the snakes. The others have a slow, enjoyable meal, though the warden and Grum butt heads over soup again. And, like, this is a bit of that colonial British attitude coming out, like... If you don't eat what I eat, there's something wrong with you. Shame, shame, hum, hum. And there's stuff from other cultures that I think is gross and would want to eat, but it's like the same is true for them and our food. It has to do with your resources and what you have available. And Grum, he has a beak. How are you supposed to eat soup with a beak? Are you just going to pour it down his throat? Like there's a whole Aesop's fable about this. This is the second stork <laughs> or heron related Aesop's fable that I think of in this book. <laughs> it's it's the fox and the heron where like the fox just to spite the heron serves soup in a flat bowl so the heron can't eat so when the heron invites the fox over the heron serves the food in a long skinny bowl that the fox can't really eat from you know kind of like mm -hmm. hey you treated me this way i'm treating you the same martin explains what happened the night before and the warden says he still has to learn you kill all lawbreakers. Two of the snakes still live. And Martin is confused. He'd shoved them all into the swamp. The warden says, kill first. They will never break the law again. His mood inflexible. This is another like interesting bit in context of what we know about Martin in Mossflower. Because Martin still doesn't really do this. Uh, he is not a a kill first person, right? Right. Uh, he, he wants to like, give creatures a chance. He wants them to. Yeah. He want like even when he knows, like even when he's seen his whole life, he still tries to give them that chance, which is like a very Christian mindset. You forgive, and you still give someone a chance. Yeah, like he's ferocious, and if people do him wrong, he'll fight back. But like he, it, it seems like he actively works not to have like the killer instinct, and we see a little bit of that later. Around noon, the mists clear up, and the group sees the mountain ahead. 
it is a great thing indeed covered in trees. They're dismayed at the thought of having to climb it, but the warden points out a cave for them, or tries to. They still can't see it, but he gives them directions to go halfway up. It will go through the mountain. Now it is his time to leave. He must stay in the marshes. But they have saved his life, and he will not forget that. Maybe someday he will be able to help them again. Rose calls out a thank you as he flies away and asks if they need to be wary of anything on the mountain. His last reply is they must ask Boldred, for the mountain is his and the marsh belongs to the, the warden. Once they get out of the swamp and to the edge of the pines, they stop to set up camp. Grum is dismayed to see their supplies are very, very low. Rose teases him a little, saying, will he let them waste away? He scolds her and steps up to take command then. Palum is to hunt for veggies. Rose and Martin are to get water and firewood. And he will go to see what else he can rustle up. He wants them all back before sunset. The other three giggle and he firmly asks them, do they understand? They teasingly say, yes, O oh Lord, yes, indeed, he is the law. They scatter, laughing as Grum grumbles. Food is important. And like, here's another one of those moments of like, they've had, like, a traumatic experience, too, in less than 24 hours, and they're using laughter to try and get rid of this fear. Yeah. Okay. And, like, just, like, they're in a what they think of as a relatively safe zone, so... They can let themselves have this, like, moment of levity. Mm -hmm. It stays safe long enough for the foraging to be a success and Grum gets to work with the gathered goodies. Martin asks what he's doing, and Rose explains how Grum likes to experiment with food, and how it often comes out very tasty when he does. They enjoy the savory soup and the experimental honey and fruit cakes that are delicious as well. Grum packs the rest away for rations, like they are just sticky with honey, so like they are pretty much preserving everything that's been mixed in with them. Mm-hmm. As dinner winds down, the camp is disrupted by a horde of wild young squirrels who are dashing and playing around with no heed for the four below. They're dressed in bark cloth with feathers in their tails. Rose is bowled over, Martin punches the offender, and Grum is used as a shield by another. Fed up, Martin snatches Grum's ladle and lays into the two juggling Grum about. With the two laid out, Martin bellows for them all to stop. They do, grinning wildly and catching their breaths. Martin scolds them, and one squirrel says it's their land, the land of the God tribe. Who's he to boss them? And it's like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of right. Like, Martin, this isn't your home. This isn't your territory. You're not their boss. But, like, yeah, they are violating what is considered the general rules of politeness and hospitality. But, like, still, you are in their space, Martin. Yeah, it, it is a weird thing where we're getting this, like, they feel, the this bunch specifically feels very much like just rowdy teenagers. Like the Lost Boys. Uh, who are, yeah. Um, and, and they're just, like, they have no concern for, like, other people's comfort around them. And because they feel like rowdy teenagers, there's this bit where it's kind of like, well, maybe this is, this probably isn't all of them. It's just the, this bunch of them, right? Who are just being rude little shits. Mm -hmm. but no 
<laughs> so Palum launches the offender with a whipping branch, but it only inspires the others to play and copy him. Like now they are all launching themselves off on whipping branches. Rose threatens to call the warden, but the squirrels know he's no threat to them. When next they threaten with Boldred, that does cause a pause. But they start to chant that she's not here. With whoops and hollers, they head off, which is weird because I swear that um, the the warden called the called Boldred a he, but they say she. It's very strange. Maybe I just misread it. Anyway. Do you want me to double check? Nah, it's all right. The readers can yell at us if we're wrong or not. You have to join our Discord to yell at me if I'm wrong or not. Haha. <laughs> With whoops and hollers, they head off. The four complain a bit, and Martin sets a guard for the night. Rose wonders about the fear of Boldred. And, like, they really, really do feel like the Lost Boys. Like, there's no one leading them. Or, or, or there are leaders, but none of them are, like, adults. Yeah. The night passes quietly for them. The next day promises to be a hot one, so they eat sparingly and begin their march. Getting out of the trees onto some shale, they carry on. And, like, walking on shale is hard. Yeah. The squirrels... It's very slippery. Yeah. The squirrels return to them, mocking and teasing them all, then start hurtling stones. Like, they are hiding in the trees as they do this. Right as Martin is about to turn and chuck one back, Rose warns him to look ahead. A large squirrel with many feathers in his tail say they must pay to pass through their lands. Martin says that they have nothing to pay with. They simply want to pass through. The squirrel mocks him and demands the little sword. Martin says, no, he will not give it up. The leader introduces himself as Waka and says that he will fight for it. One-on-one -on -one with Martin. Martin hands his sword off to Rose, who calls out a warning as Waka launches a back attack. And your thing about, like, they steal the feathers. It's like, I feel like whoever has the most feathers, it's almost like a game of um, uh, flag football is what it makes yeah. me think of, where whoever can steal the most feathers and keep them is the boss. Because, like, it's implied that yeah, Waka that's, is the that's biggest. Yeah, that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. He's, like, the biggest yeah. and the meanest, so he gets to be the boss. Yeah. I also want to point out we get another, this is another, uh, like wild tribe that has like the leader with like feathers mm -hmm. type thing like we had it with like uh the queen of the pygmy shrews mm -hmm. uh the high beasts mm -hmm. so it, it it feels like brian is using feathers as like a, a a like marker for this sort of like tropes mm -hmm. Because, like, the, oh. the feather the feather in your cap, you know, like, it, it is a traditional, like, leader trope. Across more than just, like, many cultures use the feathers as a sign of, yeah. like, we're the boss, we're the best. Um, yeah, because they're flashy and noticeable. Yep. Uh, we also have, you know, the, the sparrows yeah. made of feathers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> switching views there's a trend here there is a trend <laughs> and it's sometimes the, the the mixing of cultural trends can be a little confusing sometimes because mm -hmm. I, I really do think that like the pygmy shrew tribe was meant to be like a mockery of like roman or like definitely like european cultural sensibilities yeah 
Whereas the savage, you know, like the, the, the savage tribe trope of the lizards was meant to be like more indicative to like the, the, the old headhunter uh, stereotypes, you know, mm-hmm. headhunter cannibals, you know, like spears and yeah. stuff and yeah, so yeah, on. Yeah. Whereas these guys feel like the lost boys, the like people who don't have a proper leader or moral compass. Like they're, they're children who are uncontrolled and that makes them dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because, like, they show later on how, like, it is dangerous if you don't have anything holding you back. It just, it really yeah. makes me think of Peter Pan. How in the original Peter Pan, you know, like, Peter is not necessarily a good or bad guy. He is a child. He is childhood unfettered. And that can be just as dangerous as, you know, someone with intentional malice. Because children... The number of times the the Peavins is... No. Pevensies. That's not their last name. The Pevensies. Uh, the the number of times they almost die in the original. Oh wait, do you mean? Oh no, the Pevensies are from Narnia. Um. Oh, that is Narnia. Wendy. Wendy. Shoot, what's her last name? I don't remember. Not charming. Darling. Darling. Wendy. Darling. Yeah. The number of times the darling children almost die. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure Wendy basically did die at one point. <laughs> Yeah, because doesn't, like, Peter gives her a kiss to bring her back. But yeah, it's a real kiss, like, they not drop the her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you've never read the original Peter Pan or watched, like, go find one of the original plays, not the Disney cartoon, yeah. which is very sanitized. <laughs> find one of the original plays or read the original book. The original Peter Pan is delightfully dark. Um, I've read the book. I read the book in sixth grade. <laughs> Speaking of delightfully dark... In the collapsed tunnel, the word that they're trapped races along the line of scared slaves. They curse Brome, bemoaning their fate. Like, oh, at least in the compound we weren't going to die of suffocation. Um, you know, this makes me think of, like, the, the people being pulled out of Egypt. You know, Moses' story, how they were like, at least with the Pharaoh we got food. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. And then you got whipped, you know. Until Kayla snaps. Pushing and bullying his way through, he's not come this far to give up. Rome tells Kayla that they're close to being out, but the tunnel is blocked. So he throws his whole body into digging, suffering a bloody nose at one point for running into a rock. His fury frees them all, getting them out into the open air again. Like, he just goes wild. He's like, I have to get out. I've not come this far to give up. Rome thanks him, then tells him he's off to warn the camp and to get help from Bala and the others. They're to follow behind him as fast as they can. No doubt, once Badrang sees they've escaped, he'll be out for blood. Sure enough, they escape. (laughs) Sorry. Sure enough, the escape is discovered with the changing of the guard at dawn. The fresh beast saying that they'd not seen any slaves when they'd passed the pit... A frantic check leads to the two guards raising the alarm. Badring comes out of his longhouse, trips over Garad's body, kicks it, then demands to know what's going on. They tell the escaped slaves and he dashes off to the house and he dashes off to rouse the horde, shouting abuse the whole time. He returns to Garad's corpse, realizing that his assassination attempt had failed. Getting another rat to drag the body, he heads for the prison pit. He sees the obvious escape hole now and sends the rat down to see where it comes out. Once the rat is gone, he shoves the corpse in and covers the grate again. 
And I like that he assumes that just Clog knew that it was him attempting to assassinate him and had already countered it. Like, even if he smugly talks about like, oh, I'm smarter than Clog. I'm better than Clog. He still respects Clog more than any other creature in his horde. He still sees Clog yeah. as smarter and better. He doesn't necessarily see Clog as an equal to him, but he knows that uh, as a leader, Clog is on the same level as him. Mm-hmm. Clog has also discovered his attempt has failed. The body of Oilback is shoved out to sea, and Clog musters his crew to be at the ready. They both basically dispose of the bodies so that the they can the other one won't know that like they know. It's another it's another part of this 4D chess game they're playing. It's just 4D chess where they're falling face first and then blaming the other. Yep. <laughs> they see Bad Rain coming, but hear the shouts and demands to catch the slaves before he can even ask what's going on. He does ask, though, and when Bad Rain explains, plays at being angry and sympathetic. You know, because like, hey, they were going to rebuild his boat, and now that they're gone, how's he going to get a boat? Um, Bad Rain says he figured they'd gone south to the cliffs, so Clog gets a sly idea and says he'll check to the north with his crew. And they all take off, you know, charging northward. Whereas Bad Rain's like, fine, I don't have time for you. I'm just gonna go check. The rat finds the end of the escape tunnel, sees the escaping slaves, and waves down Bad Rain. A company of strong ex-slaves, led by the Rose Hip leaders, dash to save the slaves running towards them. They see them coming, as well as Bad Rain's horde. They know they don't stand a chance if the slaves don't get up on top of the cliffs, and so throw over vines to help haul them up. A few dash down the vine ropes to help the stragglers, with Buckler wondering if they'll make it back up in time. The rescuers fling javelins to scare the horde back a little, and strong beasts haul up weaker ones as fast as they can. Two are taken down by spears, and the horde inches closer. Badring hits Buckler on the shoulder with a spear and almost gets the rope. Except Roanoke had given a mighty heave and pulled up six creatures at once. Ah, my phone got me really quick before... Yeah, I want... Before we move on, I do want to skip back to the uh, bit. Like, as this is happening, like, at the very beginning, like, Bala makes... Like, you pointed out, Bala makes a comment that, like, about Brome, like, you're only a fool if you fail... But if you like if you if you succeed, you're a hero, mm-hmm. and it's true. Uh, and it's it's yeah, it's very true. Like like this is this is what Brome was was counting on. He was like, I have to succeed because then I'll be a hero and they'll all take me seriously. Um, whereas we were all like, he is so gonna fail. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Right, um, because he didn't do what we expected of him, and he actually played it smart. Um, Mm-hmm. All right, let me reread one part, though, because, again, I apologize, everyone. I was did a lot of this on my phone because I did most of this actually at work during my lunch breaks. Um, so he hits Buckler in the sh- shoulder with a spear and almost gets up the rope, except Roanoke had given a mighty heave and pulled the six creatures up at once. So, like, she just, like, yanks... Roanoke strong. She just yanks the rope out of his, gr- his grasp. And I make a comment about Buckler getting the spear of the shoulder as, "'Tis only a flesh wound." Because, like, that's the second creature to get a shoulder wound. Whereas, like, shoulder wounds can still be serious. Infection is very much a problem in this day and age. 
you can sever the tendon away from mm-hmm. like the bones and stuff and it can cause mm-hmm. problems. Um, I want to read the specific thing that Bala says because the way that he says it I think is important. Um, so like um, Roanoke no, not Roanoke, Feldo says what a reckless little fool Brome is. He could have been captured at Marshank or smothered in that tunnel. Uh, Bala hefted his lance lightly. Matter of opinion, old lad. If you fail, you're a bali fool. If you win, you're a jolly hero. And then Roanoke uh, says uh, Bala's right. I'd say if he pulls this off, he's a reckless hero. Who would have thought it, young Brome? You know, they're yeah. all realizing, oh, we do need to take Brome seriously. Like, in this specific moment, they're like, oh, he's not just a kid. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, they have that moment of, like, we can't just pat his head and let him be. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to a bunch of other kid characters in the previous books, Brome is actually getting a pretty decent treatment. Like, there's a bunch of other kid characters who just, like, they're, they're not exactly spoiled, but they're ignorant of the danger they could be in. Yeah. And as such, you know, it's it's interesting seeing them get... You know, seeing Brome get the chance to prove that, like, he's not just an ignorant kid. It's the difference between yeah. being raised at Redwall and being raised in a, like, yeah, Noonvale is described as being like a paradise, but they know there's danger around it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we get, a, it's it's a breath of fresh air, honestly, when it comes to, like, these younger characters. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, the kids at Redwall just, they don't know about, like, the harshness of the rest of the world. Because they live in, like, a quote-unquote utopia, basically. Um, It's nice to see a competent kid. Very. One second. Um, They spot the vermin climbing the ropes, and Roanoke says to let them get a little higher. Then she'll move the boulders holding up the vines. Badrang catches on to what she's doing a hair too late, only just saving himself and fleeing as the rest of the beasts are flung into the open air or crushed or, even worse, dragged by the ropes. Like, this is... The boulders just fuck up the cliff. Yeah. Like, this is another one of those scenes where, like, Brian really likes just chucking vermin into the open air. I guess height Mm. warning, too. (laughs) The... Badring retaliates with some archers and is rewarded with cries of pain from the top of the cliff. Roanoke nearly gets an arrow to her paw and asks the others to load the weak and wounded double time onto the uh, cart, which they brought with them. The cart. Um, That handy dandy cart. Uh, With that done, they escape. Like that cart is like the MVP of the book. Honestly. It's a battering it's, ram. It's pulling its weight. It's a tri- well, actually Roanoke's pulling its weight. <laughs> <laughs> Batring asks for a report. Fifteen horde beasts dead, eight slaves, and maybe more down. His men watch him wary, and he responds to the incident coolly. Because they're like, is he going to get angry? Is he just going to, like, brush it off? And he decides to, like, go, you know what? Okay, fine. We're just gonna roll with this i've I'm still got the upper hand here uh he tells hisk to take 10 of the best trackers find the camp and return no fighting they will strike this unlikely lot of enemies when they least expect it because he's like they're just it's a bunch of ex-slaves and actors they can't be as good as they think they are mm-hmm. and like badring has the numbers on them yeah 
he knows how many of the actors there are because they put on the play. Mm-hmm. And he knows the condition the slaves are in. Mm-hmm. So, in Marshank, Clog gloatingly sits in Badrang's chair, eating his food. He and his crew had snuck around back and taken the fortress. The gates are locked and barred, and now Badrang has a nasty surprise awaiting his return. And here it is. I want the book to just be about these two. <laughs> like, none of this having to go back to Noonvale. Like, yeah, sure, keep the prisoner escape plot because that helps drive the conflict between these two. But, like, the back and forth, the push and pull, like, each one trying to triumph for the other, and Clog finally getting one up on Badring is so satisfying to see. Yeah, because Badring was too, like, moving too fast to really consider Clog's idea of, like, no, they probably went to the south to trick you. I will go to the south. Like, Badring was like, okay, whatever the fuck. I'm going this way. Yeah. Uh, and he's probably going to realize, like, when he realizes that Clog is in there, he's going to be like, God fucking damn it. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I should have known. Yeah. <laughs> we switch back to the fight between Martin and Waka. It's short, brutal, and... Well, I'm not going to use that word. It's short, brutal, and vicious. Mm-hmm. Martin wins, of course, pinning Waka down. He asks if Waka has had enough, or is it to the death? And, like, here's Brian reminding us that these are animals. They have built-in weapons. And when they use them, it's terrifying. Like, we finally get to see Martin in an actual knockout, beat-down brawl. And Martin just goes wild. Yeah, it is, It is like, the amount of scars that he is going to move into the next book with. Or in a, like, we don't get a good description of like how many scars Martin has on him from before he I ended up in Mossflower. Like we know he's I think he's it's scarred. also implied though. I think it's also implied though that he isn't too badly scarred because his wounds are treated almost immediately. Yeah. After every fight. Like Rose is on top of it. So whatever scarring he does get is minimal it seems like. Yeah. It would just have been like interesting to see that because I think we go into a lot of these books with this kind of, like, I don't know about you or other people, like, the way that I see Martin when he's Martin the warrior as, like, the spirit of the sword um, is very, like, pristine, almost kind of, uh, like, saintly, you know? Mm-hmm. Not, and I'm, I'm talking, like, saints as, like, run-of-the-mill Christians think, not Catholics. Yeah. Because yeah. Catholics are like, oh yeah, we have a saint who was skinned alive. Yeah, there's that one <laughs> fellow who's always depicted being shot. There's a lady who carries her boobs on a plate because they... Oh were, god, oh, I love uh, her. Uh, yeah, the Catholic, Catholic saints, saints go are, hard. Yeah, but like when, when we think of like your average saint, like the ones that everybody thinks of, like St. Peter and things like that, it's very pristine and angelic kind of vibes. They don't have scars or markings from life. Um, when they should, right? They should, because that's how Catholicism depicts them, but they don't. And that's how I've always pictured Martin as not necessarily being a scarred and, like, grizzled warrior as he is, mm-hmm. you know? Because even when they, they, he retires, he's still scarred and grizzled they and want, old. They want to remember him as the peacemaker, not the warrior. Yeah. Like, He's the warrior only when they need the warrior. It's that bias again. 
he he's a protector like they say warrior yes. but what they mean is protector whereas martin it's, was a warrior yeah it, it's kind of that thing where it, it reminds me of like aslan and narnia mm-hmm. or like even modern christianity where like a figure of power who is violent is gent is gentle down over the generations until they become like the figure of protection who whose teeth have been dulled do not cite the deep magics to me, which I was there when they were written. After all, he's not a tame lion. <laughs> so the squirrel whimpers, and it takes Rose calling out to Martin and pulling on his arm to snap him out of his battle fury. Like, he was in full berserker mode. Yeah, this was the thing that I was talking about earlier with him when I said it was going to come up later. Like, he has the the instinct to kill. Like kill first because somebody did wrong right he has that instinct Mm -hmm. and the warden we get that kind of like showing the warden has not necessarily i'm not gonna say given over to that instinct because that implies that there's no thought into it but the warden is like this is how it is done right i've put thought into this and this is the best way for it to be done whereas martin is like but there's another way and rose is helping to show him that there's another way right we see that like actively especially in this moment this was like that i don't want to call it a big moment but it feels significant knowing what we know about martin in moss flower that this happens where he has to be that that red it describes as like the the veil of red mist which is a thing that we get Mm -hmm. described with the badgers a lot Mm -hmm. leaving martin's vision and him being like i don't need to push this further yeah. I've won. It's, it's, it's pulling back that fighting instinct because when the blood is up, you don't always see what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, especially because in his fight with Sarmina, like the fight to the death, he doesn't have that mist. He's mm-hmm. very calm, very calculated in that fight, right? He's also um, a lot older, too, by mm-hmm. that point. But it, it's interesting seeing the through line from this moment to that moment. Yeah. The young Martin to the Martin who's learned enough to control himself. Mm -hmm. He backs away, letting Grum wash his scratched face. The tribe is silent, leaving their leader bleeding in the dust. Once back in the woods, their laughter returns as they mime and mimic the fight, like mockingly. Mm -hmm. Um, Rose finishes applying the leaves to Martin's wounds and asks to leave. She hates this place. Yeah. The way that Martin won this fight is that he locked his legs around the, uh, around Waka's throat and was pulling up on his ears, basically strangling him and preventing him from being able to move his head. It's, it's a fairly brutal thing to do without shedding blood. Like it's brutal. That is a, it is a wrestling move done for real. Yeah. So they spot the cave finally, but it's far up enough that they debate on stopping for the night. Rose fusses over Martin, and even when he turns her fussing down gently, gets a laugh from the others by mimicking the wardens. While Grum unpacks the invention cakes, Martin dozes and Palum sings a little ditty, and then gets scolded by Rose. Yeah. Um, I love this because, I, like, before I read it, I just want to say, Palum wasn't raised with other hedgehogs. Cause, like, he we must get have from had the... some companions, though. Like, he has hedgehog culture. He does, but it, sh- it was, like, with the the um, the high beasts, like, he was 
like he's been there since he was very very young and so this is either something that he remembers from before that point that he learned from maybe another like slave to the high beasts who maybe passed on was killed etc or he made it up I really mm-hmm. like the idea that he maybe half remembers something and he made up the rest of it uh, which is sad but also I like the idea of it <laughs> um Oh, the hedgehog is a fine old beast, all covered o'er with needles. Not smooth, oh no, like some I know, eels and fish and beetles. Some creatures call us hedge pigs, and others say hedge dogs. But I do know that frogs is frogs, and hedgehogs is hedgehogs. Why did he say smooth sharks? Where's the shark in this list? These smooth, these smooth fish are nibbling on me. <laughs> oh, God, that comic. The arguments. Sharks are smooth. Sharks are smooth. The, I don't know what you're talking about. Those who know, know. If you know, you know. But sharks are smooth. <laughs> Martin wakes up to the faint noises of the Ga tribe. He's dismayed to see how far the sun has moved. So Rose tells him they can move on now. And it's like, again, like, this is her, like, playing the motherly role, mm-hmm. almost. It's She gets this really weird back and forth of character writing, where it's like, sometimes she's motherly, other times she's allowed to be, like, a young woman, always in a somewhat leadership role, whichever role she's playing. A little Very bit peculiar. of it feels like Brian reminding us that she's a girl. To yes. a degree, like, kind of the implication that, like, all women have this motherly instinct. I don't think that that is what he intended, because I don't think we get that in later books, especially when we start getting more, like, women warriors as the, like, focal point of the books. Um, but it, with a lot of these books, we kind of get, like, we didn't get it so much with Marielle, but there was a little bit of it, right? <laughs> And and with other, like, their quote-unquote main cast, like, girls, we've had a little bit of that where, like, we've seen the motherly attitude that they've had kind of override other parts of their personality. And I, I, I feel like that lessens as we get more and more into further books because this may just be a quirk of Brian's writing that he's still working on. Right? Yeah. Like, he, he, he has to get comfortable with writing female characters mm-hmm. or, like, breaking out of that old tradition of, like, women are always have that motherly instinct or want to protect. You know, like, he, he gets more comfortable with it because we've clearly seen he can do it. Like, he does a really good job with it in Mario. Yeah. But Rose yeah. has that weird position of he wants her to be competent, competent. But if she's too competent, then she's going to take over for Brome. And he doesn't, like, it seems to be he doesn't want her to do that. Yeah. We're getting an interesting thing with Brome and Rose. What we're seeing, Rose has the leadership skills, but we're starting to get where earlier, you know, at the beginning of the book, we were like, Brome is good, definitely join the Rose hip players. But we're starting to see more of that, like, leadership skill that he has and he's developing. So now I'm, like, questioning, well, maybe he does become the leader. You know, like yeah. we don't know yet. And I don't remember the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're going to find out as we go. Yeah. And I also want to, before we move on to this last bit, I do want to point out, I'm not going to read this whole thing. Cause I already talked about like the scars and stuff, but in Moss flower, like it didn't feel like Martin was that old. Right. 
Mm-hmm. He felt very young adult. Like he here, I'd say he's teenager age, like probably like 14, 15 years old. Yeah. But in like, Mosslauer, he definitely felt like he was like 18 to 20. Yeah. But he still felt young. And it's it's weird. Like he's like, this is, he is young in this book. So that, that kind of like, how far from this point was Mossflower? Like how young was he actually? Because he grows up a lot in Mossflower to the point, Mm -hmm. like by the end of the book, he doesn't feel young anymore. He feels much older, but it's just, it's that weird thing of like, it's like remembering how quickly like your teenage years go and just how small of a part of your life that bit is, even though it's so fucking important because it's where you do a lot of your learning, right? It's where you make a lot mm-hmm. of mistakes and learn about the world and learn about yourself. But then you realize like you're you're oh, in your 30s or approaching your 30s and you're like, Jesus, that was such like, that was like barely a decade, right? Right. <laughs> but it's so important. <laughs> and like how, so much of your... How fast that goes right and it's kind of the vibe of what this feels like with martin in this book and martin in moss flower like the sort of like difference it's the difference between a 14 year old and an 18 year old they're so close in age but there's so much experience between those two ages Mm -hmm. right that that gulf of experience yeah it's fucking wild thinking about that always fucks me up because it's just like there's just it's the difference between somebody who is 22 and somebody who's 27 right they're not that far apart there's so much experience between them they're both adults Uh but there's just so much between them it is wild how we as people learn things yeah i mean like no, you're fine, because one of my friends was recently talking to his mom about, like, oh, you know, my friend, she just got a full-time job again, and she hasn't had one in a while, so she has to get used to it. And the mom went off on, like, yeah, well, people from your age don't really understand it. And he goes, hey, whoa, 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 mom, she's older than me. Like, I've got older friends than I am. And it's like, he, I had to have him remind me, like, he's 26. I'm 32. Yeah. There is you a know. gulf of experience between you two. Yeah, there's a there's experience like between us, like we're very close in age because I'm 29. That's only three years, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still there's experience like you've had experiences with life that I haven't had and have learned things that I don't know. And the same like I've had experiences you haven't had, but there's still like you have more world experience than I do. And it's only three years apart. Mm -hmm. Like that, that difference between being born in 91 and being born in 94. Yeah, God. And you wouldn't think it'd be a big difference, but it is. It matters. Yeah, yeah it matters. Um, it matters a lot. Because, like, I grew up with, like, a bunch of 80s hand-me-downs. Like, a bunch of those 80s nostalgia posts. I'm like, hey! And then you see the 91s. I'm like, hey! It's like, I'm fine. Remember, I know both. <laughs> yeah, and I grew up, like, my, my, like, I was, like, seven in 2001. <laughs> So like I like the 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 90s nostalgia as like a, being like a young kid to the like the the the, the 2000s, 2000s like the aughts nostalgia yeah. is so like I I feel that in such a different way than like cuz I I'm, I'm I'm right on the cusp of being a millennial versus being Gen Z. I, I am lean solidly more towards, a millennial. <laughs> yeah. I lean more towards millennial just because of like how I grew up and the things that I feel more nostalgia for, but I'm definitely like that cusp kind of thing. 
but there's a lot of younger Gen Z that like they don't have because the, they were very young kids in the early aughts, right? Rather than just mm-hmm. young, because like being seven is kind of like a young kid, but not five. You're not five, right? Yeah. Whereas I was five in like the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> so like, there's a difference, and it's it's wild. So Pe- listeners, speaking- time is weird, <laughs> and generations are weird. And it's fucking cool, but also is a trip to think about. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> okay. Speaking of ages and so on, their way is blocked by the God Tribe who demand another game. Martin asks, what if they don't want to play? And they respond that they'll kill them. Like, they're all holding hand axes and other mm-hmm. weapons. And there's enough of them that, like, they know they won't stand a chance. Yeah, they and they've back. got, like, instead of having one leader, like, Waka's no longer the leader. They left Waka to just fucking bleed. They have so now multiple. They don't even have a leader. They they it from the way that it's described, they have like multiple like small leaders, but they all seem to agree on what they want to do, which is you know, fuck these four up. Yeah, and it's like they these creatures they they, they they're they're almost described as like the way they're played with or uh, Brian writes them. It's almost like they're mad, like they just want to play. They just play and goof around. They have right. no. No empathy. Mm-hmm. So, after a brief conference, they agree to play. The game is they run uphill, which is where they wanted to go anyway. But then the tribe chases. And when they catch them, they throw them off the mountain. And it's Fun like, hey, game. yeah, if you do that, we're going to die. They don't care. Yeah, it's like, I don't think we're going to like this game. My friends and I could be killed. Mass laughter greeted Martin's statement. Many voices calling out from the bunch from the bunch in imitation of him. We could be killed. <laughs> what a nasty game. <laughs> Basically, like, again, they have no empathy. Um, Martin convinces them to give them all a head start to allege a ways up the mountain. Like, he flatters them. He's like, look, you're squirrels. You're good at climbing. We're not squirrels. Wouldn't it be more fun if we got a head start? Then you could chase us longer. They're like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he says, and when I get up to the mountain, I'll call out the tribe. I'll call out God tribe and then you can chase us. So Rose is frightened and poor Grum almost paralyzed. But Martin keeps them close, leading them through the horde and up the hill. I had a, a thought while I was reading this bit, like about like kind of where things are in relation to each other, um, because there's there's this kind of assumption that a lot of these books kind of happen on the same continent, mm-hmm. and I'm not entirely sure where this is in regards to Mossflower Woods, but it kind of feels like it's the south, uh, like the Southlands, uh, but also. It might be up north. I don't remember. But, like, both of those areas, to the south and the north of Redwall, are described as, like, feral country, right? Being wild and, like, there's just a lot of bad things that happen. And some of this feels like Brian is writing to fit that narrative that he's created already. Mm Mm-hmm. And it feels bad. It does. Like the, you know, the geography of this land, the placement of things. It's just, it's whatever Brian needs them mm-hmm. to be. He's written himself into a corner with some of this. Mm-hmm. They manage to reach the ledge, Palum almost falling, but Rose saves him. Martin refuses to play by the squirrel's game. And instead of calling out the go signal, 
they all take off on a dead run. Below, the tribe takes a few minutes to catch on. Then, howling with rage, they take off after them. The deadly game has begun. And they are fast. Yeah, like they are catching up. And that's where we end that bit. Yep. That's the end of this section. Wee. Next, after this, we'll be on the last bit of the book. Book three, The Battle of Marshank. Whew. <laughs> God, there's so much happening in this book. Brian, stop having three plots going at once. I mean, I don't mind the three plots. It just, they suffer the most when the, like, one of those plots feels like they don't need to be there. Because mm-hmm. I really feel that he shouldn't be dragging out the return to Noonvale. I feel yeah. that him dragging that part out is actively hurting the book because all the parts of the book that I don't like are the Martin plot lines. Yeah. I think right now. We can get more into this because we actually have a question about the plot lines. So mm-hmm. when we get to that question, we can do an in-depth discussion. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. To our questions. What was your favorite weird food in this book? I want to try the experimental cakes. Yeah, because they're like, they're honey and like apples, nuts and berries plums. that have been gathered. Apples and plums. Yum, 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 yum. Yeah. Honey that like they, they found in like cold spring water because it was just a honeycomb floating yeah. in there. Like, where the fuck did that come from? Deus Ex Honeyna. Provenance. Deus Ex Honeynut. I'm leaving. Goodbye. <laughs> 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 next <laughs> next question <laughs> was there an animal that appeared that surprised you slash did an animal subvert expectations uh the god tribe yeah the squirrels because they're kind of subverting what we've seen of most squirrels in the past well yes not in a no. good way remember there was that one savage squirrel tribe uh in um Matameo. yeah and but we're in I a very feel... weird part of the world that felt like death. Yeah. But I, it's, I, it's, I don't know. I, if you if you actually watch squirrels, though, they can be very oh, vicious absolutely. little creatures. And I feel like Brian's playing up their viciousness to an extent. Because out of, like, like mice, voles, and moles, and so on, like, a, a savage mole tribe wouldn't be as threatening as a savage squirrel <laughs> tribe. Let's be honest. Squirrels are a lot faster and a lot more mobile. Yeah. I mean, of course, like, if the moles had plans to, had, like, the ability to plan ahead and dig tunnels, they could be a big threat. But Brian's not going to give a savage tribe that much forethought. He's not going to, like, depict them as being that intelligent and cunning. No. Um. So, yeah, like, the savage tribe, like, the the... the the squirrels being like the lost boys, it feels very odd. And it's like the fact that this is the third one we've had in this book is extremely frustrating when in the past, Brian has written simple environmental threats as a good thing to slow yeah, them down. Storms I, or, you know, rivers. Yeah, we've only really had the one environmental threat so far, and it was the storm on the ocean and mm-hmm. the, the, the dolphin. The Which dolphin. I would count as an environmental threat because they didn't really interact with it as a creature. It was an environmental threat. And I wish that we were getting more of that as they were walking through the marshlands and up the mountain. And I hope when they get into the cave, we get some more environmental threat type of vibes. I don't know if we will, 
Well, we might. They still I have mean, a we... whole fucking forest to get through, apparently. <laughs> I mean, when we when we get to the cave, well, we have a mountain to get through. Yeah. Um, when we get to the cave, we're gonna meet Boldrin. You know what's gonna happen? Is like they're gonna like almost get caught by the tribe. They're gonna or they're going to get caught by the tribe. They're gonna be hooting and hollering, and then Boldrin's gonna come out and be like, "What are you doing?" I know Boldrin is like a giant mole. <laughs> I don't remember. I legitimately, I do not remember. My prediction is either Boldred is going to be another bird of prey, or we're going to get, like, a badger. Another badger. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. Next question. It's, next question. <laughs> what was your favorite part so far? Again, just the back and forth between, you know, Bad Ring and Clog. It's like, so I wish fucking good. More. It's just so the whole fucking good. The foiled assassination attempt. Skip the next question. Move on to our <laughs> wonderful questions from our readers. This t- or not oh, our readers, our, our friends listeners. from the Discord, from Kai and Ben. First one from Kai. Which plot line, like the hero's plot, the villain's plot, or something else, did you enjoy the most? Slash, think was the strongest, and which one do you enjoy the least? Slash, thought was the weakest. Well, we literally just talked about yeah. that too. We've talked about it like the whole book. Basically, we really enjoy the B and C plot and the way that they kind of intertwine, because the area around Marshank with Clog and Badrang and the the Rosip players and the slaves is extremely interesting with the way that it's all playing out. Whereas the hero plot, the A plot is eh. Mm-hmm. You know the one Just... fucking image of the dude who's like making that grimacing face, like the old dude? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that's my face with the, <sighs> the three like savage tribe tropes that we've had in this yeah it's, I'm, tired. Like, I'm tired i'm tired i'm tired i'm tired <laughs> brian i'm tired man i'm tired physically and mentally my dude i just finished the first two weeks of a new job <laughs> we don't need this we don't need this like i want to pick me up dude not a <sighs> yeah all right from ben did you notice the intelligent birds have been restricted to large predators in this book yes anything else might be vaguely intelligent but not to a human level. Also, it's a weird saying that Rose could sing the birds from the trees given in Redwall. You could just ask them to fly down and they would. That was my thought. I remembered it. What other sayings do you think would be adapted for Redwall or would you like to see used? And this is something I remember distinctly from, you know, books going forward that Mm -hmm. the only intelligent birds we're going to get, like the birds who can actually talk are going to be predatory. Yeah. And even then, their level of speech is going to vary from bird to bird. Like, I distinctly remember, like, one bird who's going to be, like, Russian. <laughs> There's ex- going to be a Russian bird. I am excited for, for that one, to read yes. that one. You know how um, much I love bird accents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I feel like it's because, like, the bigger the bird, like, in theory, the more intelligent it should be. Uh, just don't look too hard at owls. <laughs> like like i love guardians of the hole don't get me wrong real hours real, real owls are dumb as bricks they are so dumb they're they so literally dumb. they are literally just their brains exist to process sound and sight and eat that like, is why their are, brains exist yeah like they are intelligent like other raptors are but at the same time they're the goofiest of all of the like raptors like these birds are just <laughs> 
they're the fucking videos goofy. Of them. They're they're so stupid. I love them. <laughs> Whereas you get like hawks and falcons, and they're inc- they're they're also goofy in different ways, but not to the same degree that owls are. Like I feel it has to. It depends upon how they hunt because like during mm-hmm. the daytime, it's a lot easier to spot what's hunting you. Yeah. During the nighttime, it's a lot harder. So and owls are silent. They are terrifyingly. Yeah. So, yes, I think that the fact that we're getting, like, primarily intelligent large birds makes sense because you also have the thing of, like, it's less scary that way for kids when you're reading the book of, like, oh, yes, the villain was eating a bird. It's like, hey, Brian, aren't birds intelligent in this world? Uh, well, it's, it's like a, a rock dove or a pigeon, so it's not as intelligent. Okay, that's not as bad. Yeah. I feel like it's Brian gently trying to tone down a little bit of the fridge horror. Yeah, probably. That would make sense. Um, Which, it's it's interesting because, like, in Moss Flare, we have a very intelligent small bird. We have a robin. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting. Like, I know it was written before this book, but, like, the continuity on that level is skewed because of that, like, shift in his writing. The, the the new book weirdness. Yeah. Mossflower being occurs. way less weird than Redwall and yeah. um, uh, Madame Ao. And even then, like, even then, we still get stuff that is gently toned down or changed to mm-hmm. fit a mood better. Yeah. Uh, what other sayings, sayings do you... Yeah. I can't really think of any. Mostly because I wasn't like... paying attention to them. <laughs> My, my brain goes to, like, rather sacrilegious ones. Because, like, one of my friends last night said Christ on the bike. And anytime someone says that, I just... Why? why it's very that? funny. Or, or, or Christ on the cracker. It's like, no! Stop it! Jesus H. Christ. What the fuck does H stand for? Horatio? <laughs> sorry. Oh, that's bad. Um, I'm sorry. I think there's, um... Oh, there was one that Grum used. Well, like when they say stuff like, oh, bend moy whiskers or shake moy tail or something like that, you know. Um, or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it'll be done in two shakes of a tail. Because, like, that's something I've heard people use. Like, just normal mm-hmm. people use. Like, it'll yeah. be done in two shakes of a tail or, like, two wags of a tail. It's like, oh, okay. Um, or J- Jiminy Cricket. Who's <laughs> actually, honestly, like, like, what about Jiminy Cricket? Like, what about, like... Silly goofy swears. Like, that's something I want to see. I want to see goofy swears. Cheese and crackers. Cheese and crackers. Like, give us cute, funny swears. I love, like, one of the things I love in fantasy or science fiction series is when they make up their own swears. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, shards or um, oh, fartles or, you know, like, just goofy stuff like that. Or oh, sketty, you know. Just made up swears. Things like that. I love. Yeah. Or, or go yarp a pellet. <laughs> Speaking of go. Criff. You wet pooper. <laughs> Fun, goofy, like, in-world insults. I love, um, a slight tangent, but, uh, Mendoa swears are so fucking good. <laughs> uh, just because they're, 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 it, it's kind of like German with how, like, weird they are or like Spanish because you know there's some like insults in Spanish that like when you translate them to English just off the fucking wall (laughs) 
<laughs> so Mandoa is the same. I want to see more things like that, where like the insults and swears are just like when you do a direct translation, they make mm-hmm. no fucking sense. Because <laughs> it's funny and it's interesting. Yeah. Give us more weird animal language, Brian. Yeah. So, alright. Next question I think we can skip because we haven't had any real new villains introduced. And the other ones are saving for later in the series. Mm-hmm. So okay. we're good. Yeah. We All don't right. have to add Roanoke to our Badger Lord list because she's not a Badger Lord. Or a Badger Lady. She's just a Badger having a good time. And frankly, I really like that. We just have a Badger living her best life with her people. <laughs> she's not battle mad. She's not having to fulfill some ancient magical destiny. She's just vibing. And I appreciate that. <laughs> So, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful you lent us your ears, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. And I would like to apologize for some of my stumbles and stutters again. I have just finished my first two weeks of a full-time job, and I haven't worked full-time since, like, 2014 and 15. So, I am readjusting and very sleepy. Uh, This has been Kit, your mumbling, stumbling uh, narrator for this episode. Uh, you can find me at Kitsy in a Box across most social medias, mainly Tumblr. Uh, I make Kitson Day, and you know, thankfully, those I can still do between you know, I can draw draw them at breaks and then work on them when I get home. Yeah, uh, this has been Izzy. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. You can find me other places online at varying versions of Sean Deer, the Sean Deer, etc. Uh, you can find the other podcast I do at Hope's Hearth Pod, which is a Solar Hope Punk actual play podcast. Um, we just finished recording our uh, season finale last uh, last night per this recording. Oh, the chaos. Oh, my God. <laughs> just like last time, Kit, when we like I recorded that same game and then the next day we recorded Abbey Archives. Mm-hmm. Oh, if not us, then who is a phenomenal game you want to be a uh, make a super sentai show like power rangers but be absolutely fucking ridiculous with it <laughs> it's so good um i do take commissions but they're on an ask basis my uh commission like form is not currently open okay so, oh i hope that didn't pick up dad sneeze if it does i'm keeping it in um okay you can find us both at abby archives on tumblr and reddit Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, Google, Apple. Yeah, we have no marketing. We have no funding except for our, um, except for our. uh, We do technically. We have a a coffee, which is uh, HS Coffee dot com forward slash HS Enclave, which is the coffee account for the podcasting collective that we're part of hearthside enclave which y'all hear which y'all hear about at the end stinger after the music so (laughs) uh so if you want to give us a one-time donation or subscribe to us on a month-to-month basis this helps pay for podcasting fees for our host uh and if we need to buy new equipment it would help pay for that Mm -hmm. uh so yeah so yeah may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry from us to you at Redwall Abbey. Bye. Okay, time dot is. Clap at the 50. Sure. Okay. Oh, I need to go make some rice.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Tumblr and Reddit at Abbey Archives. And if you would like to help support this podcast, you can find us on Coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash HS Enclave. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave. And some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.